Hey there, welcome to Why We Roll, a tabletop role-playing game design podcast. We're your hosts, Chris Pickett, creator of the historical fantasy game Dance Macabre, and Wythe Marshall, creator of the political sci-fi game Stillfleet. Throughout the show, Chris and Wythe hope to amplify new creative voices. We'll chat with different TTRPG designers focusing on the world of indie games. We take a curious approach to game design, working through a range of mechanical and narrative questions that are pertinent to many designers, players, and GMs. We hope to showcase fresh and even challenging ideas about what makes imagination-based games just so powerful. Okay, let's find out why we roll. And we're live. Oh, hello. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, what's up, Chris? How's it going? I'm good. I'm doing well. How are you, wife? Uh, I'm all right. Yeah, it's a stormy day here in New York. Looks I like. know. It just, it just started, too, right before we uh, went live here. Yeah, hopefully uh, folks can still hear us. We don't cut out. All that good stuff. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, if you get a little thunder in the background, it's... It's just it's that metal. Right? Yeah, it's metal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's well, the game we'll be talking about, you know, yeah, seems 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 pretty appropriate. Um, yeah. Maybe, uh, Chris, do you want to intro? What are we talking about? What are we doing here today? What is this show? Yeah, sure. So uh, today we are talking about Dance Macabre, which is a game that I am currently working on. It's a work in progress, uh, but it's uh, it's a dark fantasy medieval horror tabletop role-playing game for one player and one GM. Currently a work in progress, but the playtest version 1.0 was just dropped on itch.io last night. Uh, congrats. Congrats Thank on you. that, by the way. Thanks. So yeah, and we are talking about this in the context of a show called Why We Roll, which we're piloting, which is you know basically a, a stream and podcast about TTRPG game design. So we can both talk about um, games we're working on, and then hopefully, ideally, if people like having us um, talk about this stuff, we'll have on other folks to talk about their games. We'll be posting some material about Stillfleet that we taped, and today we're going to talk about Dance Macabre, and we'll return to both those games because those are the games that you and I have respectively, you know, been working on. But you know, like I said, hopefully we'll we'll bring in just a lot more um, voices and perspectives on game design as we go. So uh, with that, do you want to um, give us more of an intro to, uh, you know, Dance Macabre, like, like set the scene, like, yeah. like imagine we're playing the game. What is happening? Sure. Yeah. The game is set in a fictional version of 14th century France. So late 1300s uh, in the text, I think I set it around 1390 and for about 30 or so years now by anybody's best reckoning, uh, death has abandoned the world. And basically what that kind of amounts to in terms of the gameplay and in terms of the, the setting is that whenever anybody dies, whether it's of illness, age, violence, what have you, uh, they are resurrected within a few hours to a few days, uh, depending on the individual. And every time a person or an animal is resurrected in this way, they're reborn in this way, they come back with a strange physical or psychic mutation, uh, which are referred to as corruptions. 
Yeah, basically, it's uh, you know, it's it's blending things like the Einstein intersection or or uh, mutant crawl classics or Gamma World, that kind of idea of of mutation being everywhere and kind of omnipresent and common, but mixing that with a kind of historical fantasy setting that also you know it's it's got some souls like elements to it obviously um and is uh yeah it's meant to be kind of a an intimate conversation between the player and the gm again there's one player one gm about death and dying and ultimately the player character they they play this uh this role called the last supplicant they've been called upon either by local clergy by their village uh, by a vision that they've experienced it's kind of up to the player to decide the starting point from there but they've been called upon to break the cycle of death and rebirth and corruption that is plaguing the world at this point they can do so by finding fun MacGuffin items that are called memento mori the flavor text around that is very loose it's meant to be up to the player or the gm which is called the warden's interpretation uh, it can be a reliquary it can be a weapon it can be a chalice like the grail it can be any kind of item that you want depending on how you're playing the game um but yeah it, it kind of harkens back to arthurian quests you know the the whole grail cycle and all of that stuff while also having this kind of like darker more modern uh spin on it but yeah it's uh, it's like I said, 14th century France, the, the kingdom isn't even a kingdom anymore. It's been shattered into various kind of warring states of petty kings and warlords. Uh, there's a lot of religious strife happening at the same time. You know, historically around that time, the papacy had split from Italy and there was a pope in Avignon uh, in the south of France. And so... They're a faction that still holds a lot of sway in the south, but then more in the north towards the English Channel, uh, towards Burgundy and all of that stuff. Um, there are kind of new cults that are arising. Um, and when I say cult, I mean it in the kind of classical uh, Catholic sense where these are, are saints cults uh, that venerate specific saints, but they're kind of morphing into religions all their own over time and with the kind of dissolution of papal centrality to the faith. In particular, uh, the one that I've kind of fleshed out the most is a, a cult called the uh, Brotherhood of the Undying Lamb. And they venerate a saint named Thierry, Thierry uh, who is <laughs> in the fiction canonically the first person to be recorded as having been resurrected uh, with a corruption. So they kind of they preach the uh, the holiness of this kind of resurrection and corruption, uh, kind of hearkening it back to like, Jesus coming back after three days, all that kind of, you know, all that stuff. Anyway, uh, like I said, a lot of religious strife, a lot of political strife, um, but ultimately the player character and most of the NPCs that they're going to encounter are uh, peasants, they're villains, they're, you know, working class people um, with this kind of backdrop of higher political and religious drama that they're set up against. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, there's there's uh there's so many great nods in this game setup that it, it almost it's one of those things where in retrospect it's like why haven't I played this exact version of you know the classic fantasy game? Um, and I think it's in part because a lot of game designers, unlike some 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 OG designers, really into this stuff, but a lot of people don't know the history and are not. <laughs> Which is not necessarily a problem, you know, if, if you're not writing games about pretend 
fantasy, you know, late medieval or early modern Europe. But if it was, if you are writing about those, that time and place, you might like look into, you know, everything from what led to, you know, capitalism and colonialism, but also uh, the re- like religious culture, right? And ideas about death and dying and bodies. And so I think that the fact you like know a lot about the time period like comes out in the, in the text, um, even in this like playtest form, right? It's, it's really fun to read. The, it's very well written. Uh, and you, you bring in a lot of, yeah, the, the religious terminology, um, even though it's very clear, this is like a, this is a MacGuffin event, right? It's, it's, it reminds me, if for some reason, I just keep thinking of The Walking Dead, and it's almost I was like, it's a reverse Walking Dead, but it's it's sort of like everyone's becoming a zombie, and there's just no final death, and so there there's a real sense of um, you know hell on earth to you know thinking also of a recent cultural artifact in our in our world, you know the the big podcast by the Chapo guys about um, the the religious wars that will happen a hundred years from your game, and sort of kick off you know hyper kick off aspects of, of, of early capitalism um, haven't happened yet, but there is this sense of like the old world is dying, you know, Catholicism is broken apart, the kingdoms are broken apart, that, that we're sort of the champions of Catholicism. Um, and so you've given a, a nice, you know, TTRPG spin on it where like, all right, you're playing like a mutant zombie in this setting. Um, and it's a great, you know, mechanicalization of, of that, that, that draws on some of the best stuff from, um, from the OSR. So why France? Why France in 1390? Like, were you interested in other places and times? Or is there something about um, specific aspects of history that drew you to like, all right, you are in, you know, the French countryside in 1390. And maybe this, this is just reflecting on like, some of the games I've created that are very specific to like, you are in a specific time and place. It's not generic sci-fi or generic fantasy. Yeah. So I'm just you know, I'm curious how did history inform that? Or was there some other reason you wanted to kind of pick that, that I think, place? Uh, yeah, history, both history and uh, mythological cycles have informed that for me. Because again, you know, like a, a, a lot of this has been informed by grail cycles, all that kind of stuff. And even though, you know, Arthur and Camelot, all of that are, they have their origins in, in English mythology and arguably in in british history uh they were made most famous by french troubadours and french authors um who used you know these these tales of romance of courtly intrigue all that stuff in order to kind of solidify the political structure of france itself um so there's you know when you're thinking about the grail cycle when you're thinking about these kind of sets of mythologies there's already this very deep french leaning to it anyway and then another reason is you know i think a lot of what we would consider like in the dragon game or a lot of other typical fantasy settings they do take a lot from French medieval culture specifically. You see English for sure. I think Robin Hood and things like that have had a big influence, but you know, we don't we don't see a lot of uh I guess what what I would consider Western fantasy that concerns itself too much with like, you know, Spain or even Sweden or or you know, like places like the Netherlands, things like that. You do see a lot of German influence for sure. I think uh, Warhammer fantasy pulls a lot from that. Morkborg certainly pulls a lot from German and uh, Norwegian or um, Scandinavian influence, things like that. But, you know, those are, those are kind of like these one-off universes. Um, Honestly, too, a big part of it is just my own interest in that time and place. Um, I think it's, I think it's interesting, you know, it, 
again, this kind of like question of the centralization of, of political and religious power uh, versus, I guess, more like people power is something that, that was really being debated at that time and place. You know, that's when you start to see, especially after the, the plague, after the pestilence, uh, you start to see these mass peasant uprisings in cities. Um, and you get that in other places in Europe, for sure. But like, you know, Paris and Orleans and all these other large, larger cities like Rouen's in, uh, in France, they have these massive peasant uprisings. And I think that that's a really interesting, again, just an interesting backdrop to have in the game. And in the game itself, uh, I, I include that in kind of the lore building section, which I want to flesh out a lot more. But basically, Paris and Ruins are, are are ruins at this point because there were these mass uprisings that just went completely unchecked uh, in the fiction of the game. So those are kind of like, you know, you can you can explore different cities that are now like shells of their former self. Uh, right. In the game. So that's again that sort of. Um the walking dead feel, but, but transposed to dragon game and taking it more seriously. Some of the things that dragon game has never been very good at taking seriously, which is, you know, there's complicated alignment systems and religions, but everyone actually seems to coexist kind of. Okay. Whereas in real life, very small differences in interpretation of, you know, religious law led to massive decades, centuries long wars, essentially. So, you know, and I, and I think, um, I think you you get at that vibe of like anything could set off this this sort of hell on earth, um, but then undercut it with the mechanic that actually you can never totally die. You just become weirder and weirder and weirder. So it's a there's an interesting tension built in that it, that it you know I mean other games have played with like immortality in various forms or legacies or whatever, but I think there's something very different about a game where. Um, you know, from the beginning, you just, you know, you can't die per se, you can become strange and monstrous. Um, you can maybe fail at missions, but you know, your, your character is not threatened by mortality in the way that murder hobos in, in other OSR, you know, fantasy games are. Um, so I, I want to ask about that next, but it, just to underscore something else you said, I mean, I remember as a kid, I mean, I was obsessed, you know, I came around with second edition D&D had just come out and that was my thing when I was like 12. And there were all these terms that I memorized, right? Like, I don't know if you remember encountering this because you have it in the game now. It's like the Bardiche or the Bec de Corban or whatever. Like, there were all these pole arms that are illustrated in those books that are like, you need to know what a 12 foot long thing with an axe and just an axe is. You need to know what a 12 foot long pole with a spike and just a spike. You need to know what it is if it's got like kind of a hammer and then kind of a pickaxe and they all have different names and half of them or just straight up untranslated French. Yeah. And I don't know why that at the time I was like, this must be very important because this book isn't so long and it's for some reason teaching, you know, it's pulled a whole page aside to be like, bro, you need to know a lot about medieval French warfare. Um, and flash forward to now. And I've, you know, in some ways it's an arbitrary design choice. It was flavor. Um, but as a kid, I, I didn't know. I was just like, okay, this must be, you know, kind of relevant. Um, so it's interesting that you said, you know, the genetics of the game, um, as you say, they're Arthurian and the Arthurian cycles really do come out of France, not England. So that we think of them as like an English story, but it was French troubadours or whatever in this moment of, of change kind of, you know, um, taking the medieval world and then, 
turning it into a story that was received later. You know what I mean? Right. It was like hundreds of years being kind of collapsed into like a bunch of pop songs. Yeah. Um, for some reason, you know, we now know a lot about 12 foot long poles with axes on them. And that's one of the things that like survives, right? You know, lots of other aspects of medieval culture are probably gone. Like many, you know, any time and place, you know, it's just, I don't know. But we know about those, those pole arms. Um, yeah, I can tell you so, the difference between a halberd, a bardiche, and a, uh, a Danish axe. And it's, but no, I mean, um, I, I definitely had a similar experience and it, I do think that that's an influence on, uh, why I'm interested in this period and, and all of that as well. Cause I, I remember being completely fascinated by that. The first time I picked up a player's handbook, um, I think the first, the first edition of, of the dragon game that I ever picked up was third edition, which I think they got a little bit more like fantastic with some of the weapons. I think that's when they started to introduce like exotic weapons and things like that. So there was, there was less, um, there was less historicity, but at the same time, it was, is the same vibe where it's like, yeah, there are three full pages dedicated just to illustrating these, these pole arms and different types of swords and all, and I don't know. I think that's fascinating. Um, and there is actual historical distinction between those weapons that people were serious about. I mean, people would train specifically in a halberd and an arming sword versus any version of axe or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like that, that flavor element a lot. And it's definitely something that I wanted to include in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like the treating it seriously in the same way you could say something Merc Borg does successfully is treat the kind of metal grinder aspect more seriously. And it's almost, um, to the point of like a Rococo, like joke kind of aesthetic, but it, it is, it's like leaning in as opposed to leaning away or trying to split the difference and be like, we're also kid friendly though. Um, it's like, no, fuck that. Like these games are about, you know, escapist kind of cathartic um, combat, ritualized combat against monsters to, in many cases, futilely attempt to save unthankful peasants or whatever um your game's doing something different but it's it's kind of leaning into something else it's like all right let's lean into the historicism but with with what i mentioned you know that the next thing i think we should discuss is is that mechanic so if you don't die do you want to talk about false death like what happens when your character doesn't die in this grim scenario um and what is that kind of meant to achieve for you as a game designer? So I'm curious to, so maybe sort of two things. One is, can you tell us like how it works? And the second is, you know, why, like what, what led you to that? Or how, how do you think that um, gives the player a different experience than another sort of similar um, historical or fantasy game? Yeah, for sure. I think a part of it is uh, I, in game design, uh, I think we've talked a little bit before, but like I, I love high lethality games. That's something that I really love about the OSR and about BX, D&D, and first edition, all of that stuff. It's It doesn't pander to the players um, in terms of the lethality of the game. You know, your actions have serious consequences for your character. You have to think about the abilities or the attributes or the skills, whatever the system is uh, set up around for the character in order to succeed at what you're doing. And that's just, I don't know, that's something that I've always really enjoyed. It just, it, it kind of tickles my brain and I think reinforces some of the role play aspects uh, that I really appreciate where it's like, I actually have to think about not just the mental state and the personality of my character, but also their physical limitations as well. Uh, and their capabilities. Yeah, I mean, I, I love playing those games. I love running those games. At the same time, uh, in high lethality games that I've run, like um, 
old school essentials or native um, or others. You know, I, I've seen players lose interest because their characters die too often. And, you know, that that can be the way that I'm running the game. That can be the way that the mechanics of the game are set up, or it could be the way that the players are are interacting with the system. I don't know. But, you know, it's just it's something that I've seen happen multiple times now. And um yeah, I just I, I became intrigued by this idea of taking kind of like the funnel concept from like Dungeon Crawl Classics, but then just like putting it all into one character um, where you can have consistency of a character, but still have change over time, as well as not just like advancement of attributes and skills and things like that, but also like a physical change to the character or sometimes an emotional change. Um, some of the corruptions, not many of them, most of them are physical changes uh, to the player character, to the supplicant, but some of them are are emotional and psychic. There's one, I think that the, the corruption is just called altered and you have to re-roll your character's humor. So there's there's no alignment in Dance Macabre. Uh, it's more, it's going off the system of the four humors, which was still popular at that time in terms of medical history. So you can be sanguine, you can be choleric, you can be um, bilious, things like that. And that kind of determines like the baseline of your personality. But the text for that corruption is uh, your personality and being have changed and it haunts you. Reroll your humor. Things like that. So I don't know. I, I just, I like the idea of blending the ability to hold on to one character with a high lethality game, something that has really fast, really brutal combat that maybe makes people even shy away from getting into combat situations if they can avoid it. But then, yeah, also still kind of rewarding people for failure at the same time. Yeah. Right. Or having a change mechanic, kind of like history and powered by the apocalypse games where you're not necessarily getting better, but you're like changing stuff because you're aging and gaining experience and dealing with new traumas. But here there's that, as you said, it's physicalized. So it's kind of um, also the, the pathetic fallacy, which was very, very common in Western art up until, you know, I guess realism, right? I mean, it's it's sort of the the, uh, the inside being made visible um, so that people who are, you know, more comely or whatever are also meant to be better souls um, and vice versa. And in this game, um, everyone is slowly becoming a mutant zombie so presumably it's kind of this leveling apocalypse effect but but yeah the, the actual mechanic right of false death when you die you roll on the d666 corruption table you gain a corruption how does it work over time so let's say that happens a couple times i get you know my my mood goes from phlegmatic to melancholic um i get some weird you know i'm looking like I have a mouth on the back of one of my hands. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I get webbed digits, a bunch of eyes. Okay. What happens over time? How does, how does it like in as a narrative structure, where does it tend toward or what's the end point? Or is there one? The, yeah, well, there is an end point. So uh, I, I would say that uh, traditional concepts of mortality are not a threat for sure. However, there is a mechanic where if you gain more corruptions, so basically if you die a certain number of times that exceeds your maximum insight score. Um, and in this game, insight is basically a combination of both 
both your intellect and your awareness. Um, but so, you know, if you have an insight of five, probably pretty average score that most people would have in the game and you die six times and gain six corruptions, you don't die. You continue living, uh, like you said, as a mutant zombie kind of character. But the story ends. You, Your character has basically lost their mind. Uh, they succumb to madness. Um, and narratively, the idea is that, you know, the corruption that's happening to you isn't just physical. It's also happening on a, a psychological or spiritual level. Um, I think I've, the way I've written is it corrupts both body and soul. So at a certain point, while you can't physically die, uh, you can lose your character after a certain number of deaths, uh, kind of depending on your your attributes at that point in the game. So yeah, you di- you know, mortality is not necessarily the threat, but madness and just becoming a wandering monster in the world kind of becoming another npc if you will uh yeah that's the threat have you played through this both ways where as you say you like high lethality games have you played through play tests where people are just corrupted out you know over and over again and have you also played through ones where you give them because it's not clear at least in the playtest version you know the memento mori as you said as a MacGuffin. have you allowed certain campaigns to go in that direction where someone finds the grail they, they restore the kingdom and they either i i presume then just get to die a true death um, or become uncorrupted or, you know, is there a good ending or is it meant to be kind of a, a you know, a mirage that's always in the distance? Or is that something you're still actively playtesting? That's something I'm still actively playtesting. Um, and I think that you can play it either way. That's something I've been kind of tossing around a bit because um, uh, what I'm actively writing right now are like guidelines for, for the GM, for the warden, um, for running the game. It's an interesting challenge as a game that's set up for one player and one warden. Um, it, I think that it, it has a tendency to skew more towards like a one-shot kind of uh, setup. But at the same time, I like the idea of it kind of constantly being a mirage in the distance. Um, I mean, one mechanic that I'm playing around with right now is the idea that at the end of any given you know, adventure, like uh, maybe if it's a location-based thing, like you, you go to a keep where somebody is rumored that there's a memento mori. Um, at the end of it, the warden just rolls randomly to see if there is one there or not, or if it even works. Uh, right. You know, just the kind of stuff like that. So I, I think you know those should probably be optional mechanics, um, and that the the GM, the warden, should have the the option to be like, okay, we're cutting it off here. You get the thing, it's over. Or it can be this kind of more hopeless just continuation of the story that continue that goes on from there i'm not quite sure yet that feels very in keeping with or earlier versions of the dragon game and kind of original ideas about um you know the table as ultimate adjudicator as opposed to gm as ultimate adjudicator as opposed to i would say in the current moment that that's also not the case i mean it's it's not like the you know i'm the rules learning of the 90s when you had to convince the gm that something was or wasn't the case um, I think now it'd be more like, what does the table think? Uh, you know, best practice, I, I would say. So I kind of almost like this full circle of like, and it's especially as a game that's meant to be more intimate, meant to be played with two people. So that's another question I have. Can it be extended? But let's say you're playing with two people, even if you both kind of agree on where the game's heading, having some indeterminacy built in. So it's like, all right, let's roll. And if the table says there's actually a memento mori that's really a relic 
of the kingdom of heaven or whatever, that's going to sort of solve these problems. Um, then it is there. And if it's not there, you know, too bad. The princess is another castle yeah. kind of moment. <laughs> and I think that, trucking. yeah, that makes it almost, I, I don't want to say a strategy game, but it, it is, it becomes a different vibe than um, the open ended fantasy games where you are meant to figure out on your own, the purpose of the game, right. And in, in the dragon game, you're often taking quests because you kind of don't know your character has wants and desires, but it's presumed the GM is going to tell you what to do. And you're like, all right, sure. I'll do that, that job. You're always kind of a mercenary. And I think this game is a little different in that sense also, which I like again, that it has a narrative structure that is more determined in advance, but actually to your point, you're not even sure if it's resolvable. It's just, it's, it's clear what your purpose is. It may or may not, it may just be futile. So there you go. Uh, potential players. Yeah. Um, so let me ask, have you played with the Mortal? Yeah. Yeah. Like enter at your own risk. Um, (laughs) have you played with, with more than one player or have you only, you know, are you pretty strict about it is meant for one GM, one player? That's it. You know, so far it's only been one GM, one player. Um, which I, I like, again, I like the intimacy of, um, however, I, I have been playing around with the idea of opening it up. And I, I think that that is possible, um, with just like a little bit of a narrative switch. Um, it wouldn't really take a mechanical switch, um, in any way, you know, you could have, you could have multiple supplicants. And I think that's really the only narrative switch that would have to happen is that it just goes from the singular to the plural, um, in terms of that. Yeah, I mean, I I would be interested to see what it looks like with with multiple player characters, and I think that that's something that I'm going to seek out in playtesting as we kind of go forward in the next couple of months. Um, yeah, with this what's becoming really intense playtest schedule, which is exciting. But yeah, I I want to play around. I want to see how it feels both ways. Uh, but like I said, so far it's just been one player, one GM, and you know, I, I don't have a good mechanical reason for that. If I'm being completely honest, the the reasoning behind it was just that when I started to conceptualize the game, it felt really heavy and felt like something that should be a really intimate conversation. So I I designed it towards one player, one GM for that reason. That being said, you know, if you have a small group of people who are kind of on the same page or have the same vibe are willing to have those conversations, then I I think it would work perfectly fine, mechanically speaking. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that because, um, well, some of these choices are the... The choices, you know, by Fia, the, the just designer choices that are the the special sauce, the the je ne sais quoi of of, our, of game design that are not ultimately up for sort of best practice debate. They're sort of like, well, I like games a certain way, or I had a feeling about this game. And some of them are um, philosophically motivated, and others I think are more style. So like the fact that still fleet, they like the mechanics would work the same if you were playing it in a mercenaries are fine fashion it's mercenaries are us it's the wagner group halliburton the game in space it's mothership right you you go shoot stuff you get paid um whereas obviously the game enforces at every moment that you're supposed to subvert the company the company's the bad guy but there's nothing mechanically to prevent you from just ignoring that uh which is somewhat by design in that you know there are games that attempt to bridge the two and i i have not found them totally fulfilling i didn't i couldn't it's not that i couldn't think of anything it's just like okay i wanted a game that the simulationism worked and then separately I'm telling you the narrative structure and you know, you're, when you're buying the game, you're buying both and they both are, I think worth they have value, but like you could just toss the narrative structure and use the simulationism. I think you have something similar here. You could play this as cool, you know, very, um, it does remind you of like good indie video games, I think. Um, 
which is maybe another question, but, but yeah, really cool game that you can play with a group like you would dragon game or, or Karen or anything else. Um, or you can do the one-on-one that you're recommending. And I think that's, um, to some degree, like how much do you, we know what our, what people who play the games actually do with the games and how much yeah. do we care? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good point. If both of those are a good point. It's like, what control do I have over how the people that play it are going to play it? And does it really matter at the end of the day? Um, it kind of, it reminds me a lot of um, Iron Sworn. I don't know if you ever played that. Uh, I think it came out in like 2019. I played it in 2020, um, but it's, it's an interesting structure because using the same mechanics throughout, you can play it completely solo as kind of a journaling game if you're into that you can play it cooperatively without a gm but having multiple player characters or you can play it with a gm and yeah the author sean tomkin he, he makes it very clear that like he doesn't care how you play the game um at the end of the day the setting is the same the mechanics are the same you can kind of do what you want to or what you will with it which I mean, I mean, I think I think that's a good approach. I think it's a solid approach, um, and I think that Still Fleet does that as well. Where you know, it's like this is the world, this is the setting, this is your starting point, uh, which we talked about a little bit last time. Take it from there. That's up to you. But you at least have these like very strong kind of narrative jump off points that I think really help the player characters situate themselves in the universe that you've built out. Yeah, and that's similar. Like when I was, you know, lauding your historical eye, it's like some of that specificity, it's it's similar to, I guess, the narrative structure. You could discard it and you could say, I'm going to use these rules, but it's in a fantasy kingdom. Or I'm going to sure. use these rules, but it's just over in, it's, you know, the Horn of Africa. It doesn't, it wouldn't change the rules really at all. You might not refer to things by, you know, as in Western European terms, or you might, and just, you know, you're imagining something different, but, but like say, yeah, we don't have control over that. And for many of us, like that's not the thing we care the most about. And I think for many readers and players, it's like, they're kind of going to try out whatever you give them and not necessarily because they're loyal to you. They may not know who you are, or remember your name, but like it's a, in a way it's like they're getting a product, right. And they want to test, you know, kick the tires a bit. So I think that is, also an interesting design choice of like how much I, I know that was a big discussion with Stillfleet and I imagine it'll be for the full version of Das Macabre. How much do you give them and how much of that you move to kind of supplemental material? So we have all kinds of other ideas. Like even with the narrative structure stuff, actually, we we have GMless gaming, um, but it's not something we emphasized. So the core book was more traditionally like GM group of players, but um, but we've done it, you know, d- by distributing the GM functions. So we included, you know, a feature on that, but really that's meant to be like a whole nother discussion. And I think that's just a choice about like, all right, well, we'll make those two different products and make sure that we test each rigorously and, you know, have give them their own space. Um, so anyway, I, I think that's, that's always like part of the discussion. And I think that's something we'll come back to is, is like how much lore, how much direction to the GM on how to do it right, you know, and maybe, and how does play testing shape that? So, you know, I just want to get on your play test schedule and, you know, just have fun really. But also I met, maybe that'll be, you know, another way to experience it as opposed to reading it and hearing you talk about it as like actually be the supplicant or, or what yeah. have you. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I do. That's the thing I think about a lot as well. Um, whenever I'm conceptualizing or designing stuff, it's like how much how much does lore matter to a player? I think that the dragon game does teach us sometimes not that much, but other times I, I think that it's deeply important. And it just kind of I think it depends on how you package it ultimately. Yeah, the flexibility. I mean, I personally I'm a big specificity like nut. 
And um, so this again feels so much better. Like, not to knock, like I think so. Karen, Nave, um, Bastards—they're all fine OSR clone type games. But the lack of specificity means I would never, like, I would just do my own. Like, I could just make up something on the spot, you know. And why would I need them in a way, you know? Whereas with your game, it's giving me something very specific and different. Which then, like I said, I think that's that's kind of what I'm saying is like it puts it on me to make a choice to not be in your version of France with your holy mutant zombies or whatever, right? Like I would have to like break your system in a fun way, but it's not a straitjacket because it's still a very, it's a rules-like game and it's doing a lot of the tropes, right? It's using a lot of the rolling. You want to get a high number. There's there's combat, there's non-combat experiences. So it's, it's kind of familiar, but it gives me a lot to work with and push against. Whereas I feel like games that don't give you anything, even D and D it's true in the player's handbook. It doesn't, but so many people buy at least let's say forgotten realms, or I would say if you're going to buy something by wizards, buy Planescape stuff, right? You get a ton of ideas, right? The Planescape books are just full of good ideas for all kinds of things that could happen in in a fantastic world. So while it's true, the player's handbook is like setting neutral. It sort of implies a certain setting. And then beyond that, it's like, they kind of know you're going to buy, they know you like play magic and now it's all integrated into one meta mega cosmos of products or whatever, but, uh, so insane. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, that, you know, that's, that would be like another, like, once you get this worked out, like, are you going to do dance macabre in space or, you know, like what's, what's like that? Um, but that, but I'll hold off on that. You may not be ready. That would be, that would be sick. I might take that idea from you. Um, no, I mean, something I have thought about doing, uh, which I think goes back to your question earlier about the regional specificity is looking at other places at the same time with the same kind of narrative concept happening right so like this is the original game is taking place in france what's happening across the channel what does what is the island or what did the british isles look like at that time what does spain look like what's happening in germany uh where you have you know these kind of like proto-reformation politics already in the works or china right like china, what's, if, yeah. if it's worldwide what's happening in these other realms and how is it sort of culturally understood um yeah i think the cultural interpretation of what was of what's happening would be uh pretty pretty fun and wildly different to explore because um, i mean i have come at it from a very western you know Christian kind of eschatological viewpoint so far. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what would it look like in other places or, or anywhere in like one of the Islamic states at that time? So yeah, the idea is to have these kind of like supplemental um, settings books similar to D&D in that way um, that kind of come out aside from the main rule set. Uh, that would be less less mechanics, more flavor. Uh, probably like you know, most of the mechanics would center around NPC uh, build out and things like that. Right, and maybe more ventures. Like here's how this memento mori hunt could work, and like mechanicalizing maybe as we we're talking about like the conditions under which a certain memento mori exists and isn't a lie, uh, a and actually works. And like, what does it do? Is it does it solve the problem for everyone on Earth? These are it sounds like things you're still debating yourself. So, you know, you're not committing to anything on the, this podcast, but um, that would be interesting to see sort of how you how you approach um, those different cultural questions. So maybe that is a question um, to engage with. And, and let me know if you don't, you know, like, is that something you, you thought about in terms of setting a game and, you know, yet another kind of fantasy game in Western Europe? Is that something you... Um, you know, you've thought carefully about, I assume, and do you feel like, I, I guess I would say this, this, 
the generous version that the way I read it is um, the historical specificity works really in your favor because you're you're saying, you know, it's not leaning away from what life was really like. It's like, okay, this is what life was kind of like at that time at the turn of the, I guess the 14th into the 15th century kind of a thing. Um, and that, that makes it sort of more interesting than a fantasy version of it that's sanitized. So why not just look at, you know, okay, the, the real source material. Um, but how would you, how would you articulate? I mean, maybe that's, that's not even the reading you intend, but that that's pretty close to the reading that I intend for, I think. Yeah, a part of it is that I don't like the kind of Disneyfied or Disneyfication of that period that does happen through a lot of fantasy. I think, you know, you said earlier, in a lot of games, you have these kind of like very different religions and very different ideologies that exist more or less harmoniously. And, and that's, it's just not very realistic. Um, not that realism has to be the point of any game. You know, if that's not your bread and butter, that's fine. But it's something for me that I, I do like to think about. And so, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it is is trying to lean into the realism around class, around access to wealth and materials, just the kind of quality of, of life back then. Because, you know, again, uh, the player character, most of the NPCs that you're going to encounter are are poor people. They're not lords and things like that. That's something that I, I like having as a backdrop narratively, historically, whatever, but not necessarily something that I want to have players enact or to really engage in. I think that the more interesting stories happen for people that are kind of disenfranchised from the get-go. And also, you know, as a as a leftist, as an anti-capitalist, like I don't really want to make princes and dukes and kings look like good guys in the story, uh, nor do I want the papacy or, you know, like anybody in those kind of traditional roles of power to look like the good guys in the story. And I think that the the disparity between the average life of a villain or a peasant and the, the life of the pope or a king or a duke or anybody in a higher position of power, that tension is, I think, inherently interesting. And I, I think just on a, a more kind of visible surface level, when you're looking at that time in history, you know, there's there's just this very obvious uh, disconnect between those two different classes in terms of worldview, in terms of access to goods and materials and wealth, all of that, all that kind of stuff. So that's that's a lot of what I wanted to lean into with the setting. One of the inspirations for Stillfleet was, um, okay, well, what if you, if at, in the in at some point in the history of capitalism, you fought back in a more concerted fashion, and how would that come? You know, what are the labor politics like that like make that possible? Um, but obviously not wanting to do a game about necessarily about like, okay, literal chattel slavery and rebellions in that context and trying to set it kind of closer to the lived experience of many players where it's like, all right, well, maybe you have a job and you just don't like your job and you think your bosses are kind of jerks, but they themselves would say, well, I'm just doing my job and there's bosses above me and so on. So it's, it's sort of, um, you know, where, where do you pick your battle and how do you frame it um, in order to surface class tensions and make those fun game things that are apparent. Um, so I think it's interesting that you're working with kind of the growl, you know, cycle material, right? It's, it's, it's epic medieval combat, but also you're not as focused as those stories tend to be on princesses and whatnot, right? You're like, yeah. everyone is kind of norm core. It's very unlikely <laughs> you ever meet anyone who's not a farmer yeah, um, or like basically a knight who is robbing you. Right. Um, yeah. Most of the, <laughs> most of the, of the knights that you would meet in Dance Macabre are either now brigands or 
Chevache knights from England who just stayed to continue pillaging after wartime. Basically, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not the heroes of the story. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think um, the leveling effect of everyone is becoming a mutant zombie. That's that's another aspect you've introduced that that changes the class dynamics. It maybe doesn't get rid of them, um, but it it's going to have that leveling effect, which I would say, for example, in a lot of games I've thought about and worked on, you know, climate disruption plays that role. You know, it's the, it's the apocalypse that is, it's not going to fix things, but it's going to change them a lot. Um, and it's going to change them for everyone. And you can't really escape it. Even if obviously, um, people who are, um, you know, starting off with more privilege are, are going to you know be able to weather out the, the proverbial storms, um, in more comfort. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean, they're going to be comfortable. So I, I think, I think there is something interesting there that you can lean into. And, and, and yeah, I, I hadn't ever thought um, when I was reading this about you you're, you'd write a book about another area of the world undergoing the same change. Um, but I, I, now I'm like really curious, uh, you know, what your thoughts are. So um, yeah, I, you know, I don't even know what that would look like yet. I think a part of it is that my, my area, it's not expertise, my area of interest uh, in, in history has been kind of centered around this place and time. Um, you can thank Barbara Tuchman and her book, A Distant Mirror for that, which is just like for anybody who might be listening or might listen in the future. That's a fantastic book. It's really interesting. You know, she does spend a lot of time with the aristocracy and talking about the kind of like higher levels of politicking that were happening at the time. But it is a fantastic analysis of the intersection between class, religion, politics, warfare, it's great. Uh, and it's almost exclusively about 14th century France and uh, the changes that came about because of the the plague, because of the pestilence. It's fantastic. But yeah, so I, yeah, I, I don't know what other places would look like at this point. It's really just an idea that I've been kicking around. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. No, but, I mean, I mean, like if we were if this was like a year from now, right, like maybe yeah. that's like it just hadn't even occurred to me like, oh, that's a very natural place you could take this this game. Right. Yeah. Um, so I love that. Well, how can uh, folks, um, first of all, pick up the playtest version, which is really great. And I really recommend everyone do. And then how should they connect with you once they read it? And they're like, that's cool. I really want to play this and or I want to talk to you about it and or I have ideas. Yeah, um, you can you can get the playtest version on itch uh, through my itch page, which I believe is timespaceplace.itch.io forward slash dance macabre. But then, yeah, otherwise, you can find me online um, on Instagram. I am picket, P-I-C-K-E-T-T underscore tattoos. Um, I'm also on Discord. We'll, we'll drop a link for that, looking at DMs on there as well. But, I mean, you can also comment and uh, follow me on Itch as well. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to kind of centralize everything. So time space place which yeah, is fun time, to time space place time space place um we'll have to talk more about um you know the anthropological idea of place emplacement uh yes. cultural place versus space and sort of physical um space and and non-places uh oh, yeah i love it like airports and malls so that's yeah. uh, that, that's something actually we referenced and still fit at some point uh, marc roger's work um oh really speaking of france uh, a few hundred years later um <laughs> well this is great um why we roll right now is just a thing we're doing on streaming, but we're going to start dropping these chats in ye old um, podcast feed. Yeah. And uh, we can be found at places uh, at why we roll pod. So uh, thanks for watching or listening. Ye people of the present and future. Uh, thanks, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Thanks wife. And yeah. Right. Thanks everybody for tuning in.
Thanks for listening to Why We Roll. Our theme music is by the brilliant Sam Tyndall and Arcline. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitch and what used to be Twitter at Why We Roll and on Instagram at whyweroll.pod. You can find out more about Dance Macabre at timespaceplace.itch.io slash dance dash macabre. You can find out more about Stillfleet at stillfleet.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>